Pasaulē tulkotākais mūsdienu Ukraiņu raksnieks. Tikmēr Krievijā kopš Krimas okupācijas viņa grāmatas ir aizliegtas. Tagad viņš saka, šis karš turpināsies tik ilgi, kamēr Putins būs dzīvs. Andrīs Kurkovs – viens pret vienu. Mr. Kurkov, good evening. Good evening. Uh, thank you for joining us on Latvian TV. My first question. When, the, when this war uh, broke out on February 24, you said, my first thought, thank God my parents did not experience this day of great shame. Why so and how do you perceive the same fact of Russia's aggression? Well, I'm ethnic Russian. My parents were Russian. My father was from Don Cossacks and my mother was from Leningrad region. Uh, I grew up in Ukraine, in Kyiv, uh, and uh, I think people of my, of my parents' generation, I mean, they remained uh, somehow, sometimes subconsciously proud of their youth, of their life in the Soviet Union. And I noticed that uh, on Facebook in the first days of war, uh, many of my friends were writing that their parents died from heart attack after the war started. So I can imagine that the same would happen to my parents if they were still alive. Uh, your books are banned from publishing in Russia since 2014, right? And why so? Uh, I don't think they, uh, they were banned, banned two times. And in 2014, it was made illegal to bring my books for sale from Ukraine to Russia. They were not published in Russia from 2008. But probably it was not because of my books, but because of my public statements and my articles in international press about Russian politics, and especially Russian politics towards Ukraine, Georgia, and Baltic states. Um, you were in Kiev on February 24, and you have been told that you maybe you are on a wanted list of Russian regime. Is it true? Well, I, I wasn't told about the list. I was just advised uh, uh, to, to go away from Kiev by my friend uh, who is a businessman connected with government circles. And we uh, made it to our village with my wife and our friend and her son and wanted to stay there, but it is not far away from Kyiv, 90 kilometers, so my friend called me again, and when he found out that we decided to stay in the village, he said, it's also dangerous because the village is on the way of Russian tanks that are entering from Belarus into Ukraine. So we needed 22 hours of driving uh, to approach Lviv, Lviv, but we couldn't make it, so we got to leave only a day later. And what about your family? Are they with you now? Well, I'm now in Paris uh, on the fundraising trip. I will be back to Ukraine in two days' time. My wife is in Ukraine. My sons are in Ukraine. My daughter lives in London and works in London, but she is traveling to Ukraine also in a couple of days. So it's a fundraising trip. What's your mission? What's your message to your audience? Well, I'm, I'm running events. I'm talking about what is happening in Ukraine. I'm explaining the reasons because between uh, uh, reasons behind this war, behind hatred of Putin towards Ukraine and everything Ukrainian. 
I collect money for refugees and also for writers, refugees, and for hospitals. Uh, I give a lot of interview, and so I would say I participate in some kind of education in Europe because everybody in Europe knows everything about Russia, but Ukraine remains unknown in spite of the fact that European countries are showing their solidarity and ready to host European, Ukrainian refugees and doing lots of things, but they don't know Ukrainian history. They don't know the difference between Russian and Ukrainian mentality. They don't know much about Ukraine. And this should be corrected because otherwise it will be just all empathy and not understanding of the situation. What's your message? Uh, what, what's the, let's say, biggest difference between Ukrainian and Russian mentality and in terms of history as well? What are you telling people in Europe? Well, I, I can talk a lot, but I can say uh, to you uh, probably the basic things that Ukraine, Ukrainians never had royal family. They never had monarchy. They had uh, organized anarchy of Cossack state in 15th, 16th, 17th century. They were ruling their own territory. The borders were flexible, but they were electing their gatements, the head of the army. They were electing officers, higher officers. They were more used to democracy and freedom than Russians who were growing up century after century in monarchy, in collective consciousness. And this is why a Tsar, and Putin is a Tsar, uh, is very important for self-esteem and pride in Russia. When Russians were not happy with their Tsars, they would kill one and love the next one. And so we are having individualism against collectivism. The Ukrainians were deported to Siberia because they did, didn't want to join collective farms in 1930s and end of 20s. For the same reason, the artificial hunger, Holodomor, was organized to take all the wheat from Ukrainians and to send it to Volga region, to the hunger, people in hunger there. And seven million of Ukrainians perished. So, I mean, the, the history is showing that Russia was always trying to crash a Ukrainian mentality. The last attempt to uh, assimilate them was done with the help of Russian language. Russification was not only introduction of Russian language, but it was imposing of Russian mentality because every language has a mentality behind it. I mean, when I studied Japanese and I spoke Japanese, I would always sort of make my eyes like uh, Japanese people do. And when I speak Russian or Ukrainian, I, I feel normal. So, I mean, Ukrainians who were turning into Russian speakers because they couldn't have a career, they couldn't get a job if they spoke only Ukrainian. They were acquiring this collective mentality which lasted as long as the Soviet Union lasted. But once Soviet Union disappeared, the Ukrainians went back to their metrics, to their old individualistic, egoistic, anarchic metrics. And that's why we have 400 political parties registered in the Ministry of uh, Justice in Ukraine. And Russia remains one-party system, just like the Soviet Union was. Putin said that Ukraine is artificial state made by Lenin, and uh, Ukraine is like antipode to Russia, like anti-Russia. Why such hatred? Well, antipode, yes, I, I said. I mean, the mentalities are opposi op opposite, opposed, collective. Uh, 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 against individual. But Putin In fact, wants actually, to when I look... Yes, but Putin wants to destroy Ukraine because of that. Why such hatred? Because he cannot annex it, because he cannot turn Ukrainians into Russians, into his subjects. That's why, actually, 
uh, he is destroying towns now. It is a revenge because his dream was to resurrect Soviet Union. I'm sure you heard many times Putin saying that his personal drama, number one in his life, was the collapse of the Soviet Union. Now when he's old and getting fragile and preparing for the exit from this world, he wants to fulfill his dreams, to, he wants to remain the person in the history who reconstructed, recreated new Russian empire or new Soviet Union. And for that, he needs Ukraine because neither Russian empire nor Soviet Union is possible without Ukraine because everything started in Kyiv, because Kyiv is 1,540 years old and Moscow was built only 700 years later by Kyiv's prince Yuri Dolgoruki, who is buried in, in Kyiv, in Kyiv Pesherskaya Lavra. So, I mean... Russian history depends on Ukrainian history, but Ukrainian history is different, and Ukrainians want to live according to their history, not to according to the Russian history. About this meta-historical meaning of this uh, battle, some say that this is about heritage, as you say, of Kiev and uh, Russia. Do you, um, do you see this collision from such a historical perspective? Who will win this historical heritage and, 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 and go forward? Well, I mean, I think the question is that he was looking for explanations, what to tell Russians, how to explain why Russia needs Ukraine. And historical argumentation is the easiest because everybody studied Russian history in the school, in the university. So everybody knows about Kiev's Rus, everybody knows about Yuri Dolgoruki. So in this sense, historically, two lands are related, but psychologically, politically, uh, socially, they are very different, and they are different linguistically. And they should remain separate countries, because, I mean, it's possible to destroy all of Ukraine if he is prepared to sacrifice 500,000 Russians who will be killed in this war. But, uh, but I mean, he will not able to uh, enslave Ukrainians and again turn them into Russians. Uh, this, is, uh, this is about more than months of uh, the severe fighting has been uh, going on. What can you say about spirit and motivation uh, of Ukrainians? Well, Ukrainians are motivated because they are defending uh, the freedom of the country, which means every individual freedom. For Ukrainians, freedom is more important than stability or high quality of life. For Russians, quality of life, money and uh, uh, stability are more important than freedom. That's why actually they agreed uh, that opposition is destroyed in, in Ukraine. They agreed with police regime, uh, with being sentenced for sharing the Facebook post. Now, actually, they cannot do even this because they decided to lock down, close down Facebook, uh, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. So, I mean, they are giving away their freedoms in exchange for stable life and not interference in political uh, life of the country. Ukrainians are different. They are prepared to interfere and to protest every time they are not happy with political decisions of their leaders. Traditionally, Ukrainians don't accept the rules imposed by force. So, I mean, they are defending practically the way of life we have in Ukraine, where we don't have censorship, where we say publicly what we want to say, and writers write what they want to write, and nobody is telling them that they are writing something wrong or politically incorrect or they are writing something for foreign countries, but not for their own audience. 
We have seen atrocities and devastating scenes in Mariupol and other places in Ukraine. Is it a genocide? It is a genocide because uh, you can see what is happening now. I mean, Putin's artillery army is uh, targeting warehouses with food, warehouses with medicine, and depots, uh, petrol depots. So he wants us to be hungry without possibility to move uh, and without medical help. So he wants actually these people, Ukrainians, to be killed. He wants us to disappear, and this is a punishment for lack of desire to become Russian subjects. There has been a huge help from European countries, different countries, but uh, what can Europe do more right now? Well, I think some countries are doing more than others, and some countries are still very reluctant to help, like Germany or Hungary or some others. But uh, Britain, uh, Canada, Japan, USA, Lithuania, uh, I don't know about Latvia, but I hope that actually Latvia and Estonia are also taking part in this help to Ukraine. I mean, Ukraine needs more ammunition against aviation and tanks because we don't have enough tanks in aviation. We have people who are highly motivated. Uh, we need also one more thing. We want you, uh, Europeans to learn everything about Ukraine, uh, publish books in their languages about Ukrainian history. And there are such books internationally known, like Timothy Snyder's Bloodlands or Anne Applebaum's uh, Red Hunger or Sergei Plochy Gates of Europe. So, I mean, I, I, I want Europe to have knowledge about uh, Ukraine and Ukrainians because I already said this. This is very important because... We will not die, we will not perish, we will not be enslaved, we will remain, we will remain in ruins, we will need help to rebuild the country, we will need help to fight our own corruption, which is still alive, and lots of other problems. So, I mean, the country is dynamic, it was developing slowly differently than the other countries, but it, it was moving forward, and Ukrainians which were born after the collapse of the Soviet Union, are completely 100% European people who want to be law-abiding, tax-paying, and cultured. And this is the future of Ukraine. It will be a civilized country, just like uh, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, Belgium, etc. Yes, and I can assure you that Latvians are doing a lot to help Ukraine, as, uh, as well as other countries in the Baltics. Mr. Kurkov, about solutions. Uh, for, for instance, President of France, Macron, is trying to negotiate with Putin frequently, yet unsuccessfully, uh, uh, also about humanitarian corridors uh, for civilians. Is there language or approach that Putin would listen Putin will not listen to anybody. Politically, he is dead and he knows this. I mean, whatever he does, he is not a leader of the country uh, officially in the world. He is just like a leader of Northern Korea. So, I mean, you can be afraid of him. You can understand that he is unpredictable. But you will not invite him into your house. You, there will be no state visits anymore. There will be probably no uh, new commerce and new projects. And... Uh, this shameful project, uh, North, North Stream 2 of Angela Merkel and Putin, will be in the history remained as the last uh, economical project between civilized country and uncivilized country in the time when uncivilized country was fighting on the territory of, the, of its neighbors. Um, you have said the war will last as long as Putin is alive. 
Why it's so? Well, because, he, as I said, he has nothing to, to lose. And 80% uh, uh, of Russians support him because, I mean, they think that actually this is the question of national pride. Some of the politicians said that even if the Russian army is wrong, Russians should support this army because it is our army, because it is Russian army. So, I mean, uh, with this kind of morality, it's clear that uh, uh, to lose uh, for Russians and for Putin uh, will mean the end of the history of so-called victories. And there is a cult of victory in Russia from 1945. So any failure will destroy this myth and will demotivate those Russians who are motivated by extreme nationalistic feelings and chauvinism. So you mean personally Putin or you mean collective Putin? So, uh, I, I, about I mean both, because actually Russians created Putin. When Putin is dead, there is a danger that they will find Putin number two or Putin number three to vote for. So, I mean, you have to think about how to change the national, uh, well, not politics, just mentality and the way, the way they are thinking so that they could choose anti-Putin, that, that they could choose actually a vote for somebody who will return Russia to the European and world context of civilized countries. Um, uh, devastating and cruel actions uh, that Kremlin call uh, liberation. I, I mean, the Russia's uh, neighbors in Baltics and in, U in Ukraine, we have been experiencing this in the past for decades and even centuries. Do you see uh, this uh, possibility or scenario where this country called Russian Federation is giving up those imperial, colonial and bloody ambitions? Uh, at the moment, it is difficult to imagine. Uh, I think, actually, the country can be only broken economically to be changed mentally. So, because, I mean, they think that they never lost, that they achieved what they wanted. They made the world very cautious of Russia and even afraid of Russian actions. And if you watch NATO behavior and these statements, you see that they are really afraid of the Third World, Third world War. And as, I, as far as I know, recently when two Russian fighter jets entered Polish airspace, NATO didn't order NATO planes to go up and to check that they, are leave, that they leave the airspace. So, I mean, obviously the civilized world is afraid of provoking somebody who is already actually provoking everybody. Uh Talking about personalities, dictator Putin uh, in the bunker versus charismatic and brave Zelensky. How do you see this rivalry? Well, I mean, in, in this situation, uh, the not the metaphor, but uh, everything looks like it is the war between old and young because uh, Zelensky is energetic, talkative, dynamic, young, and uh, Putin is just the opposite. So, I mean, this is the war between future and the Soviet Union, between future and past. Uh, 
this is a question you mentioned about the culture and uh, there is information about books in occupied territories now where the Russian forces withdraw Ukrainian books from libraries uh, which don't fit in this Ruski Mir, um, let's say, ideology. Is it true and what's going on on these occupied territories? I don't know about the books, uh, but what I know that in Melitopol teachers refused to reopen schools and to start teaching in Russian instead of Ukrainian and according to the Russian school program. And that is why the head of the local education committee, Irina Sherbak, was kidnapped by Russians. And I don't know if she returned home or she is still detained and questioned or tortured. And we see on news that many uh, Ukrainian artists, musicians, even comedians have been joined the military or trying to cheer up people uh, on the streets or in a bomb shelters. Uh, do you have any friends among them, or how they are doing? I know practically everybody in, on the arts or literary scene, and I, we are good friends with Sergei Jadan, uh, who is actually playing and uh, reading poetry, his poetry in Kharkiv, in the underground. I know also publishers and writers, brothers Kapranovs, who are uh, now patrolling Kyiv uh, in territorial defense, and Artyom Chepai, Ukrainian soldier who is in the army on the front line, and Oleksin Sov, film director, who, who was sentenced by Russians for allegedly attempting to blow up Lenin Monument in Simferopol. He is on the front line near Kyiv. So, I mean, people of us joined everybody else in their effort to free Ukraine from this fascism and actually to try to uh, make the peaceful future as near as possible. Uh, we have noticed uh, a lot of Ukrainian courage, suffering and pain, also brilliant sense of humor during this days of, of war, um, maybe you have in mind, you ha do you have in mind uh, an episode depicting the Ukrainian people in, in this war most of all? Well, there are lots of episodes. I, I, I mean, uh, not exactly about this. I, I myself, I, I thought that I lost sense of humor I, on the first day of war, but three weeks later, uh, it came back. And, uh, I, and I just uh, wrote a couple of days ago, a short joke on Facebook. Please do not demonize Putin. Demons are upset. So, I mean, the humor is back and this the is humor is one. helping to keep uh, the morale and high spirit. And there are stories which make people laugh, although they are connected with the war, like the story of evacuation of eight kangaroos from private Kharkiv Zoo. I mean, I don't know where these kangaroos are now, but I know that those volunteers who took them out of Kharkiv, they didn't know where to go, and they asked some people uh, to keep kangaroos just like pets at home while they will look for place to take the kangaroos further. Hey, Mr. Kurkov, you mentioned zoo, and uh, I, I would say that uh, I, I got a book from Latvian Library. This is your book uh, in Latvian, Picnic on the Ice. It's also about a penguin, Misha, who is from uh, yeah. Kievan Zoo because lacking of food in the 90s, he uh, becomes a pet of the main character of this book. And uh, very interesting, very, very funny and sad story. Uh, and you said that Soviet people, they are like penguins. 
in, in, in one of your interviews. Why so? Because people, Soviet people were collective, just like Russians are collective. And if something happens to a structure in which this collective exists, so the rules are broken and uh, uh, suddenly a person who was collective finds himself alone somewhere. He loses orientation. He doesn't know what to do because he was doing everything that was done by everybody else. So he was coping somebody's roots, uh, movements, actions. And when uh, it is required that somebody alone can do something, then he's lost because he was not individual. He was never taught to take decisions. He was only following orders. And in this sense, collect, uh, penguins are uh, natural collective animals. They do all everything that they do, they do together. So if it is a colony of penguins on one island, so generation after generation, they would walk the same route, the same circle. And if you uh, separate one penguin from all the group and take it on an uninhabited, uninhabited island, this penguin will be disorientated just like a Soviet man after the collapse of the Soviet Union. So, I mean, this parallel for me was very obvious, and that's why I used a post-Soviet uh, man character, Victor, and uh, a separated from a group, lonely penguin mission. Uh, Soviet Union collapsed 30 years ago. Uh, do you think uh, any uh, post-Soviet people are around um, around us as well right now when we are talking yes yes because because you you can actually keep soviet union alive in head of in heads of people and one of the instrument is television and one of the tv channels that did a lot for uh, keeping soviet union alive in the heads of people was uh, russian tv channel nostalgia which still exists and broadcasts soviet films with happy soviet endings and different talk shows and uh, comedy shows from the Soviet times. So you can artificially keep somebody in his head in completely different epoch. And this is very dangerous because if there are so many people like this, they can influence the politics in the country, they can vote, they can betray the country if they asked by people who are also coming from the same past that this person loves because it looks so nice in old films and in old talk shows. On Russian war propaganda TV channels, uh, they say Ukrainian nationalists did it. For, for instance, in Mariupol, they destroying houses, they killing civilians. And this is just one example, of course. And uh, how do you think, is there any possible antidote uh, for such brainwashing? I don't know. I mean, uh, I think that there is enough of proof on YouTube uh, who is uh, committing these crimes. And it is Russian army committing crimes and killing people. And uh, the best Ukrainian translator from a ancient Greek, Alexander Kislyuk, was killed in, uh, uh, near Kiev in Bucha in front of his house, who translated Aristoteles and Placidus and other philosophers. So, I mean, what kind of nationalists can go... Uh, around in tanks or bomb the cities. I mean, we, we don't have many tanks, we don't have many planes, I mean, and the missiles that are shot at us from Belarus, from the Black Sea, from Russia, they are not launched by Ukrainian nationalists. And these missiles are killing hundreds of people, including children and women. Mr. Kurko, 
we know it. We, 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 we saw it on TV and, and, and on a free world. But my question was about this propaganda machine in Russia. Whether we can do something, how to uh, we, get we, the we cannot do right, yeah, we, correct we cannot information. Do anything yeah, we, we can do and we've done, I think, in Europe. In Europe, nobody believes uh, Putin's propaganda anymore. But in Latin America, he is doing a lot now to prove that Ukraine is a fascist state and that Jews think that it is dangerous to visit Ukraine. And I receive phone calls from Mexican and Argentinian journalists who are asking, is it true that actually the Jews are killed on the streets of Kiev because they are Jews? And I said that Ukrainians actually voted for Jewish-Russian-speaking president with 70% of votes. Would an anti-Semitic country uh, elect a Jewish president? And then actually you can find lots of Jewish intellectuals in the government and in the uh, other state institutions. For Ukrainians, it doesn't matter the origin of person, the ethnic, the, uh, the faith. I mean, people are not judged by the color of skin or the ethnic group in Ukraine. Mr. Kurko, you have uh, uh, written, this war has already added many myths to Ukraine's yet unwritten history. Some of these myths will turn out to be true, and I just don't know which. Can you explain on, uh, what's your first impressions of this untold and unwritten history? What could be written some, someday? Well, uh, I mean, every war creates myths and legends. And, uh, I mean, one of the first legends of this war was existence of a pilot who is nicknamed Ghost of Kiev, who apparently shot down about 20 Russian fighter jets. But Ministry of Defense says that this pilot exists. He is still alive. He is still fighting. So uh, they are keeping his name unknown in order to uh, defend him from possible assassinations of, from the Russian side. And there are many stories like this, but there are real stories about uh, a soldier who blew up, blew up a bridge together with himself in front of the Russian tanks that wanted to cross this bridge and enter Genichesk, a small town in Kherson region. And there are lots of cases. I mean, uh, another legend, but probably also true, that, you know, we have almost 700 members, 700,000 members of hunting associations in Ukraine, and they have 1,500,000 rifles and guns. And uh, uh, there was a message on news that a hunter in Chernigov region approached Russian soldiers and uh, also blew up a grenade, killing himself and four soldiers. I mean, some of these stories, they remind us about Soviet heroic deeds in the Second World War. Uh, because, I mean, then we know that there were lots of uh, not real but very heroic legends and myths created. So I, I look forward to find out which uh, cases, which uh, heroic deeds from this war were real and which were made up just by people or uh, changed and made more beautiful and more heroic by the participants of the events. Mr. Kurkov, Ukraine will prevail, but your prognosis, when and how long it will take? Well, it depends, of course, on uh, uh, life expectation of President Putin. 
But uh, I have a feeling that the war will go on for several more months. There might be pauses, uh, but uh, if we take into consideration that Putin is still sending trains and trains with tanks and self-propelled grenade uh, guns uh, towards Belarus and Ukraine, is looking for more professional soldiers from Wagner army or from Syrian Assad's army. It means that he still hopes that he will be able to seize Kyiv or Odessa and uh, to keep what he occupies for the Russian Federation. I don't believe it will happen. I hope that actually mothers of killed Russian soldiers will go out into the streets. I hope that Russian oligarchs who lost their yachts and their villas and their access to their money in Swiss banks will find a way to change the situation to be acceptable again. And I have a fear that actually if oligarchs uh, do not make it, and uh, the power will be taken over by military or FSB, then the war can go on further, maybe after a short break. But I'm still positive because I can see that Ukrainians are not giving up and they will not give up and they will not accept occupation or annexation of Ukrainian lands. Mr. Kurkov, your books are translated into 36 languages, if I'm not mistaken. And one of your first um, uh, works, uh, which has been published in 1991, uh, is called Don't Lead Me to Changaraks, and sounds familiar yes. to the Latvian air. Is it any connections to, the, uh, to Riga's suburb? Of course, of course it is about Riga's district. And it's about, actually, uh, Soviet secret history. And it's also about, partially, the geopolitics of Stalin when he was trying to dilute ethnic population with Russians and Ukrainians and sending families of retired Soviet officers to settle in Kangaraks and to create Russian-speaking community in Latvian capital. Right. So, thank you, Mr. Kurkov, and I hope you see you in Riga, uh, hopefully after Ukraine will prevail, finally. And thank you for this interesting interview. Thank you very much.